0: Sodgecast. I'm Mark Austin.
1: And I'm Stacey Roberts. And we, we are, are the Sons. Sons of Joy.
0: You're listening to Sodgcast number 15,
1: our 15th ever SodgeCast.
0: Today's SodgeCast is sponsored by Second Chances.
1: Makers of do-overs.
0: Rehabilitation.
1: And a second bite at the apple.
0: So in the news this week, there's a, a couple of things that most of our listeners have probably noticed.
1: Yes, we had a presidential election in the United States.
0: Which uh, goes a little bit towards the idea of, uh, I guess, a second chance.
1: Yes, because what we did, in effect, was we rehired the guy who already had the job. And uh, in keeping with that, we thought we'd talk about some presidential second chances. In addition to President Obama, one of the first real second chances in American presidential history was Grover Cleveland, who won the presidency, and then lost it to Benjamin Harrison, and then the next term defeated Benjamin Harrison to become the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Another fine example is Richard Nixon, who lost to John F. Kennedy in 1960 by what he considered to be a razor-thin margin, then won the presidency twice, starting in 1968.
0: Well, and there's also... President Lincoln.
1: That's right. President Lincoln's political career was not really stellar, as I understand it.
0: In fact, there were more than, I think he had more than second chances. He had second chances on top of his second chances to make all that work, but he stuck with it. America gave him that second chance.
1: And I think that arguments could be made that in their second chances, things go reasonably okay. If you think about it, Grover Cleveland established trade relations with Columbia, Uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, served two terms in the White House, and then resigned in disgrace, and Lincoln presided over the worst war in American history. Well, he also opened
0: trade with China, if you're going to keep on the trade
1: topics. Yeah, trade's exciting. <laughs> the people who listen to our SajCast are all about, you know, yeah, oh, battle... It's fine for Cleveland, but not for Nixon. Well, but nothing happened when Grover Cleveland was president. <laughs> they named a Sesame Street character and a city after him. That was it. There you go. Wait a second. My specialty is not American history. I hope that the listeners are clear that I think I probably should stick to antiquities where I know things about the Flavian emperors and, um, you know, Constantine.
0: So uh, I noticed yesterday, uh, and you noticed as well, and we had a bit of a discussion about this, but we were looking at our ballots. We voted in the uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky, and our ballot looked a little different than, well, the ballots that I've been used to in Florida. Well, I don't know. You've been voting here for a while, I suppose, but...
1: uh, Yes, but much like as in food porn, I don't really notice what's going on around me. Um, Just look for the boxes to tick. Yes. I mean, well, in this particular case, I couldn't find my polling place, so I drove around for a little while. So this is obliviousness, step one. I found my polling place. I went to my polling spot. They handed me a ballot, and I had to fill it out. So I did that, and I didn't really look at the top of the ballot. I just started ticking names because... As it turned out, I voted early in the morning, which made me late for our normal morning writing session, and so I wanted to expedite the business of electing the leader of the free world so I could get down here and write a book.
0: Yeah, well, I also voted very early in the morning, in fact, the the polling place had just barely opened, and the building itself wasn't open, and I had to rely on a very large man standing behind the door to let me in (laughs) at that point, uh, because there was was no one around. But when I went in... um, well, one of the things I noticed that I thought was odd, which I, and I noticed that uh, I saw some articles that the UN observers also found this odd, was that I wasn't asked for identification, but I was. Yeah, so it's it's kind of spotty. I mean, there's the whole yeah, we know what your signature looks like on this eight bit rendering <laughs> of your signature, which I'm not sure really holds uh, holds much water. But yeah, I was I wasn't asked for any sort of identification, and uh, but anyway, I got my piece of paper. Which well, was,
1: let me let me interject here yeah. by saying that Kentucky. Is unlikely to be contested. Oh yeah, no, that's
0: that's your I vote. Think you're safe no, no
1: one is going to take a hard look at your hanging, Chad, and wonder if you intended to hang it or if you intended to chat it, whatever that means. So, oh yeah,
0: and, and having come from the land of the hanging, Chad, Florida, or, uh, yeah, Florida, the ballots there were electronic for a number of years, um, and even before that, the the paper ballots were were just massive phone books of, of electoral nonsense that we had to go through. So this was a, a single page. Was yours uh, the same way? Single page. Yeah, single page. Photocopied. Um, it wasn't a, a very uh, fancy affair. But what I noticed about it was, uh, and I don't remember this being an option either in Florida, but that you could vote on party lines. To yeah. Save yourself some time. Exactly. So, so that you could have arrived sooner and made made the uh, the writing the writing morning on time.
1: Yes. Well, the the notion of the straight ticket, which um, I actually do have some information on that in terms of what states they have straight-ticket voting. They only have straight-ticket voting in Indiana, Iowa, Alabama, Kentucky, Michigan, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, Utah, and West Virginia. Only those, 36. <laughs> <laughs> We're not good at math. Well, yeah, that's, this is that's a relatively short list. Right, and so what it means is that you can check a box that says uh, straight-ticket. Uh, Democratic or Republican or Libertarian or the Green Party, and it will simply register your vote for each of the candidates for that party on the ballot.
0: Although I did have to wonder that there there really didn't seem to be uh, beyond the presidential choice. There wasn't really anyone in the Green Party running for city council uh, or you know uh, any of the other local positions. So or
1: Congress. <laughs> I'm not
0: sure, yeah, I'm not sure how that would have worked out. Yes, uh, but the point of the story wasn't about uh, voting. Uh, it wasn't
1: about straight, the contents of the straight, ballot. <laughs> a
0: Straight ballot, yeah.
1: It was about the top of the ballot.
0: Yeah. So under the section that said "vote straight party," what what happened there was they had little icons, uh, pictographs, if you will, of the logos of the various parties. And uh, four of them in, in this case.
1: Well, but the, the the two the two that you're likely to be familiar with are not the ones that you expect because yeah, well, if you're
0: well, there, let me let me well we have this up on the website so you can look at it but. Imagine, if you will, a Statue of Liberty, a leaf, a rooster, and a
1: log cabin. Now, the listeners of the podcast are saying, aha, we've well figured out where you are in the world. You must be broadcasting from Switzerland or some <laughs> other, you know, wackadoodle country so because yeah, if you're looking who would, for would do a, that? Oh, I don't know, an elephant or a donkey.
0: You're out of luck.
1: Well, I mean, you're in the right zoo. You're just in the children's zoo. <laughs> the rooster <laughs> and the log cabin. And so, naturally, we decided to figure out what this meant.
0: Well, yeah. So, so to to help everyone out, the uh, the Statue of Liberty was the Libertarians, which I guess the word works out. So that's if you're if you're fond of French statues, there you go, Libertarian. Uh, the Green Party was a leaf, uh, so I guess there's a whole green connection there, uh, which leaves
1: us with the bird and the cabin. That's right. And so the cabin is the symbol of the Kentucky Republican Party. The Republican Party, yes, in Kentucky. And the rooster is the symbol of the Democratic Party. Now, being intrepid researchers, we set about to find these things out, and I did quite a lot of work in trying to figure it out, and as the end of the day got closer and as uh, pre-production loomed, it occurred to me that I might just have to guess, and so I gave it some thought. The log cabin, and this is a guess, and all my previous Sojcast guess guesses have been wrong, but we'll go with this. I'm going to go out on a, on a limb and say that the log cabin icon of the Republican Party in Kentucky must have something to do with Abe Lincoln. But this is where commenting on our website is a way to prove me wrong and shame me to no end. So if you know the answer as to why the emblem of the Kentucky Republican Party is a log cabin, feel free to post it on the website and watch for your name and your contribution in Sodcast 16.
0: But that would imply that you know something about a rooster.
1: Well, I did find because something this out This is
0: the home Colonel Sanders, after all. So, so surely, Kentucky Fried Chicken and the fried chicken of the Democrats must have something to do with chicken in a pot, although I don't think that was the right party. No,
1: that wasn't the right party. Chicken in every pot was Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican. But, uh, and I, I must say that up, up until pre-production was nigh my best guess on the rooster was, well, Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) And I'm glad that I didn't make that guess or say anything like that on the air because it would made me sound like an uninformed jackass, which is a different emblem of a different party. So the rooster, as it turns out, was the emblem of the Democratic Party in the Midwest back in the 1850s when the Republican Party emblem in Indiana, Ohio, and um, uh, other Midwestern states was an eagle, and so I guess the... Yeah, so to put
0: this in context, the the, the donkey uh, for the Democratic Party didn't come around until, what, the
1: Well, no, the donkey for the the Democratic Party started in the presidency of Andrew Jackson, who was, I guess, essentially the first real Democrat, per se, and they basically had him, they had caricatures of him riding around on a donkey, uh, which... Heavy, heavy insult for 1832. Not flattering. Not flattering at all. And so the donkey was in use for the Democrats, but I think in the Midwest, they didn't want to use that, and they went with something, I guess, more noble, the rooster. And uh, it seemed like an eagle versus rooster motif that was going on. Well, I think that's where it came from.
0: So, now, and and we also looked this up because we were curious, but the Democratic Party actually has a new... logo which is the letter d
1: it's a big blue d and a big like a superhero well i think we're gonna have to put that on the website too
0: but but apparently the the state of kentucky is is so mired in pre-civil war iconography well now we were in all
1: fairness in all fairness the pre-civil war kentucky kind of our golden years henry clay um we had offered up a number of vice presidents before then. Kentucky was doing pretty well until the Civil War, which it did try to stay out of. And so I think that uh, we may be a bit nostalgic for um, the heyday of our state.
0: I was going to say, but it's both parties that are doing it, so there you go. Yes. All that money spent on new logos, but we had blurry photocopies of stuff from the thirties, uh, 40s. That's yes, said, 1850.
1: So, yes, I think that... Uh, well, anyway, go to the website and look at the ballot and uh, look at the icons. And um, and I think that it will make you wish that you yourselves had a second chance to vote just so that you could look at your ballot <laughs> and see what sort of emblems there were in your state because I can tell you that state party logos are different throughout this great land.
0: Okay, so we'll segue into our updates section here. We, uh, we decided on, on a few new uh, kind of format changes on the website. So one of the things that our, our intrepid and avid listeners might have noticed was that uh, we posted a zombie guy episode for Halloween on our Halloween Sodcast, which kind of made sense because it was thematic. But we noticed, well, some of us being the noticers of things... Uh, the, the width of the, the comic strips seemed to fit very nicely in the width of our normal Sajcasty page. So we thought, oh, well, why don't we just throw one of those in there every week so that our, our listeners and readers don't have to go off looking for Zombie Guy elsewhere.
1: And I must say that I did notice it as soon as you pointed it out to me. So while I am oblivious, I can't actually uh, accept new information and go, oh, I <laughs> well, guess was, you're right. It was,
0: it was the detail of it fitting so well that I enjoyed it.
1: Yes, because that's what we're all about here at the SajCast, lining things up perfectly within a margin.
0: So anyway, uh, you can look for uh, future zombie guys on the, well, whatever the most current SajCast is with the most current zombie guy. This week's was uh, was about uh, the fat children of America in what turned out to be a rather preachy zombie guy. But I, I had a kind of a funny story to tell, which uh, pushes the boundaries of credulity here at the SajCast. But uh, we like to track our, our viewership, I guess, or listenership, in, depending on which venue we're using. And so one of the ways that we do that is with Google Analytics and, of course, through the, uh, the tools that are provided by the websites and all that. And an activity that I do every, every once in a while, I went out and looked at the Google Analytics for Zombie Guy just to kind of see, you know, how many people had had viewed the, the page and, and where they were coming from and what bizarre countries people might have, might have stopped by to, uh, to say hello from. And one of the things that it gives you is uh, the keywords that people were using when they come across your site. And so some of these would be fairly obvious. I mean, if someone were putting cartoon or webcomic or zombie, those all make sense, safe to say. Yes. But the, uh, the one that caught my attention was, uh, and I will quote here, uh, there's a bee in my ass, unquote. So there was someone... In the world, and, and if only we could backtrack this and understand more, who was typing into the Google search engine? There's a B in my ass, and they ended up at Zombie Guy's page.
1: I gotta say that's something to be proud of right there. <laughs> that's a landmark moment for Zombie Guy. That's something where, in the in the kudos section of nice things said about Zombie Guy, is that that is a search term <laughs> that ends you up at your comic strip.
0: Yeah, I mean, being the IT professionals that we are, we, we have to kind of, I mean, the best guess we have is that the word B-E-E, those letters appear in Zombie Guy because it's X-O-N-B-E-E, so there is the word B sort of in there, uh, but I'm, I'm imagining the dire straits of, of this person, you know, wherever they were in the world, hastily, I imagine, typing into the search engine, there's a B in my ass, and then coming across the Zombie Guy page and going... Yeah, that's, that's kind of funny, but um, there's a B in my ass, and I, this isn't really what I was looking for. So I'm not sure that was a full convert or, or a fan in the long run, but I, I thought the listeners might enjoy that, uh, that little uh, B in someone's bottom segue.
1: And the impulse of whoever it was, under those, shall we say, extreme conditions, to say, I think I can fix my problem by means of a Google search <laughs> of my symptoms and or <laughs> malaise. Indeed.
0: But I uh, I noticed you posted a new trailer trash. Well, I guess it wasn't this week, it was, it was a, last
1: week. It was last week, and it, um,
0: it seemed to feature a second chance of some sort. Well,
1: it did indeed. Um, uh, loyal readers of my blog will know that I was not the favorite son in my house. There were two of us, and, um, well, I was not the favorite. I'm fine with it now, as you can tell, because I blog about it. And in this particular case, my brother and I were riding our bikes to my aunt's house to use her swimming pool because ours had been demolished to make way for a parking lot for my mother's new business. And my mother loaded us down with all kinds of knickknacks and tchotchkes and snacks. And when my mother sent us off with snacks, uh, and, and loyal readers of the blog will know that she's not really the best cook and she has a fondness for raw red onions. So we ended up with Tupperware containers of of salad that mostly was mostly raw onion in little uh, containers and her famous cream cheese sandwiches which um were made with whatever the 70s equivalent was of fat-free cream cheese and bread made from you know reconstituted you know like spinach flour in my blog i put that it tasted like the absence of hope and so uh, that's how I did My mother's food porn is, you know, do you know what uh, despair tastes like? And that's, <laughs> some of her food is is like that, you know. Um, so we set off, and my brother took off in front of me. He was, he was much bigger than me. He was a faster on the bicycle, and he was, well, he wasn't waiting for me to catch up. So he just kept going, and I stood up on the pedals to go faster and uh, overcorrected the weight of my backpack that I had all this stuff in uh, caused me to go too far in one direction, and I hit a Pontiac with my head. Slid off the Pontiac, landed on the ground between two parked cars on a on a side street, essentially. I say we should remind people that you know this was in the 70s, and
0: Pontiacs were well-built cars in those days.
1: Yes, my this head was, was
0: a steel hood.
1: <laughs> my skull remembers there being a high metallic content of some <laughs> real good American-made steel. Um, and so I spent the next couple hours, as best as I can tell on the ground between two parked cars covered in onions and cream cheese. And um, when I woke up or came to, whatever it was, it was dark out and I had to kind of just get myself home. When I got home, I went down to the basement where we lived because the first floor had been taken over for the beauty salon that destroyed my pool. And my brother and my mother were sitting on the couch watching TV and he had McDonald's. And my mother, who has made sandwiches out of unspeakable things, didn't allow fast food in my house and so I thought, Oh, well, clearly they thought I was dead, and this is my funeral. (laughs) The refreshments will be served. and And if I give the eulogy? Yes, and so uh, they were quite surprised to see me, and um, sent me straight away to bed, because that's what you do when your kid has a concussion. And so my second chance was that I did not die, although I think I missed a couple chances, because I believe that my brother drove back home the same way that we had gone, and so at some point he had to have passed me, laying between the parked cars, reeking of onions. And so I asked him a couple of important questions. One, when you were at our aunt's house swimming, did you notice that I wasn't there with you? One, and on the way home, did you notice me between the parked cars, reeking of onions? Well, no, of course he did. Yet another occasion on my sojourn and through childhood in which, well, I could have died, but didn't.
0: So uh, we've come to the, the point in the SajCast where we would normally talk about um, a book or review something, but we decided to break from that tradition a bit. Well, I think what, we're, what
1: we mean to say is, is that we decided to do better. To give ourselves a second chance. That's right. Because uh, rather than us tell you about a book that we have read and how great it is and that we like it very much and reference authors whose name we can't pronounce because we've never spoken to them out loud... We have decided to interview an actual author. Yeah, so we interviewed Mary Paddock. If you go back through all the Sajcasts, you will find the one, if you start at the first one, and work your way up to number 14, you will find the Sajcast in which we reviewed Mary Paddock's book called Sing. And it was actually our first book review. Our first book review, it was with great joy. We realized that Mary Paddock had another book coming out. And so we asked her if she would be our first ever author interview on the Sajcast. So we did that, and we're going. I'm going to go into the uh, the Studio
0: Z archives now, and uh, and get up on my trusty library ladder, and see if I can find the correct reel,
1: and bring it down, and uh, we'll cue up that interview. Boop, 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 boop. This week on our Sajcast is our first real interview, and this week we're interviewing Mary Paddock, who is the author of Sing and her newest book, The Fasten Files. And if you listen to earlier SodgeCast, and I won't tell you which one, there is an episode in which we reviewed Sing. I personally found it to be one of the greatest books that I had read in a while. So I was pretty excited to hear that Mary had another book coming out. And uh, Mary, so the book, is it officially out now and available to buy on Amazon?
2: It is officially out now and available to buy. Yes, it is.
1: Okay. And I had the impression that the process of getting it, out from manuscript to, to print was not the easiest thing in the world. Um, oh,
3: no. Oh. Yeah.
1: And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking that we'll, we'll come back around to that and talk a little bit more about that uh, in the rest of the interview. I guess, uh, I guess what I'd like you to do is kind of tell us about the new book. You know, for the writers out there, we're interested in the process of how you came up with the idea and how you felt that of all the ideas that you've got rolling around, that this one was viable to be a compelling story and novel length, and and what made you go ahead with it, and then kind of how long it took to get it to where you were ready to publish it.
2: Okay. Hawthorne Files is about a young woman who finds a dog in a parking lot and kind of on a whim decides to bring him home. She needs something in her life. She needs a break, a, a change of some kind. And this dog sort of presents itself to her at the right moment, and for reasons that will be explained in the book, she goes and basically beats him, gets him to allow her to pick him up and bring him um, to her car, and she takes him home. And over the uh, next couple of months, she finds out that he's really a really remarkable little dog. He has a very special talent, but you will have to read the book to find out what that talent is. As per the inspiration for the story, well, I think there were a lot of things behind that. Um, in case you haven't figured it out from my blog entries, I have a number of dogs, and that <laughs> and kind of have a real soft spot for them, and have rescued a few, and most of whom I still have, um, which means I have more dogs than most people.
1: And, and um, so, and so, when you're when you're sitting around the house trying to to get inspired to write something, do you look around and you say, "Well, they they say to write what you know," and there are there are quite a lot
3: of dogs here. <laughs> right. so so maybe there I was should... that. Yeah,
2: just... I had I had been um I had been contemplating the human animal connection for a long time. I'd worked in the vet's office for a brief window in time. And as we were able to have our own dogs after well, when my kids were little, um we were able to move to rental houses where we could finally have our own pets. I became aware that some dogs seemed to be on the same wavelength and some didn't. And in particular, I've had a couple over the years. I've been very fortunate to uh, call my own dogs, who were extraordinary companions. So, yeah, I started contemplating it. I think the actual writing of the story was a whim. I sat down one day needing something to think about and had this little idea in the back of my head, and I wrote out the scene, and I thought, well, that's a cute little scene, and it's done. And I I showed it to my husband and to a friend of mine who was a writer, and they both said, oh, no, no, there's more to the story than that. I said, no, no, that's all there is to it. And I stuck it on a floppy, which should tell you exactly (laughs) when this happened. Um. (laughs) Long time uh, ago. The
3: the IT professionals that we are, we can't help but think that maybe we should send you a care package um, so you can get the next book done with modern equipment.
2: It, well, I had modern day equipment now, but in those days I didn't. I had a floppy, and I put it on a floppy, and then we moved, and I lost the floppy for a month. And, well, that's moving, and I found it in the bottom of a box. And being me, I probably didn't mark the floppy, but I was looking for some poems I'd also written and some other stuff, and I stuck it on there, and there was that story, and I pulled it up, and I looked at it, and it was better than I remembered it being. And I saw the rest of the story almost at once. And so I started writing it, and it kind of unfolded because my children were young and because I was also homeschooling. It took far longer to write it than it typically would take to write a 75,000-word story. It took mm, a year. I put it away after a year and thought, well, that was fun. That was a good first book. And um, I'll put that away, and I'll move on to the next book. And so I put it away, and I moved on to the next book, and I moved on to the next book, and I don't know, two or three books into it. From time to time, I pulled this up, and it became kind of a guilty pleasure to edit it. It's like, this is the first book. We should let it be. That's usually the advice you get. But I kept chipping away at it and editing it here and there. And then about two years back, a year and a half or so ago, I pulled it up again. And all at once, I recognized exactly what I had, and exactly what needed to be fixed, and exactly why it was a charming story. Pardon me while I pat myself on the back. But um, I started working on it. Well, we can
3: do that way. for you if you'd prefer. <laughs> <laughs> let me you let me <laughs> a question.
1: Based on the fact that the original story was on a floppy disk, how long how long are we talking from the time you got the idea to today when it's out and available okay. for people to buy? Oh.
2: Oh, Stacy. Um, ten years. Okay. Um, okay. I have other stories that are more recent, but yeah, it took. It does not typically take me ten years to do that. It oh no, no, we we're not
1: suggesting that. Yeah. I think. I think what we're going, what I'm going for here is, you know, Mark and I have a book that we've been working on for ten years, um, oh, wow. and, and longer. So, so I think that's that, Emily. Huh? That's Saving Emily. That's no, Saving, Saving Emily. No, Saving Emily is is only a couple, uh, maybe oh. a few years old. It's right? only a few years old, but. But you know we've been writing stories for 25 years together, and I think it's not uncommon for a lot of writers to have something that they've been just kind of noodling at for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to say, in this case, the result, if I can patch you on the back, was worth the wait.
2: Well, thank you, thank you. And yeah, I was I was uh, working on it and kind of and I, again I, at that point, the last time I sat down to work on it, I was not still not completely sure anyone else other than me would like it. And Hal Johnson, who follows you on Facebook, popped up in my inbox one day. I'm still not sure what motivated this with him. And Hal said, I am sending you some books for your Kindle, and they're on Indie Publishing. And, I, again, not, we had never discussed it before that point. So I think some somebody must have tapped him on the shoulder. You know how that works. And uh, so I took the books, and I read them. And he also, we were discussing getting forth the email, what I was working on. And I told him, I said, well, this is what I've got going right now. And I'm not really sure whether anybody but me is going to like this story. And he said, can I read it? I was like, mm, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Worst case scenario, he's going to tell me it's silly. And I think it was less than a week later, I heard back from him reading about it. He said, you've got to do more with this one. This is a terrific
3: story. Well, and, I, and, and let me just
1: say that if you had sent that to me, on the first page, and listeners, you'll find this out when you buy the book, but essentially, you know, your style does the thing that, that, all writers wish they could do, which is hook the reader early and permanently. And in the first page or two of the book, there's a scene where she's trying to get the dog, uh, trying to coax the dog into her car in a fast food drive through line. And yeah. And so, you know, I have to ask if you've ever done that, if you've ever had to <laughs> run around a fast food parking lot chasing a dog yelling at it in German. <laughs>
2: No, 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 no. Um, I had picked up two dogs in parking lots, but not like that. Um, one was actually through an animal shelter that happened to be in that parking lot, and the other was a puppy, long story. But, no, the closest i have ever come to that was a shepherd that was with us for a while who uh, belonged to a neighbor, and we found her trailing a chain down at a local gas station. And I had to coax her into letting me bring her home. And I walked her all the way home, and she was my first experience, I think, with that connection I was talking about. And when I put her back in her yard, it was kind of all over her face. She didn't want to go back there. And she made it very plain that life is not supposed to be like this. And she kind of broke my heart and spoke to me. And so I went, got back in the car, and I looked over at my husband, and I said, "Um, we're going to rescue that dog. And he's like, what do we need with a German Shepherd? (laughs) And I said, we need that dog. And um, so uh, we brought her home, and she was with us for quite a while. She was a wonderful dog. But that's probably his question. I was in six inches of mud. I guess I should add that.
3: (laughs) Okay. Well, let
1: me – along that line, I'd like to ask some questions about your process, because you've kind of of described how you came up with the idea and how you started the story, and then you kind of let it sit for a while, and then you brought it out again and, and tweaked it here and there. And then you, well, you send it to Hal, and it sounds like uh, kind of like we are. We don't like people to read what we're writing until it's close to finished. So right. essentially, my question is: writing a story is composed of at least two parts, and, and indie publishing aside, where you have to do everything from editing to proofreading to, to publishing it. But just in terms of, you get an idea in your head, and then you go from there to writing the story. And it seems like much of that is done alone. It's done in your head or yeah. on on very ancient computer equipment with your dogs around. Um, and and we write collaboratively. So we're right here in the room. And and if a bad line comes out, we the other person says, no, that's a bad line. And so when you do it by yourself, when when you're the only editor or the only collaborator you have, is there a lot of Going back and 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 self doubt and that kind of thing when you're when you're writing your stories.
2: Oh heavens, yes. Um, and lots and lots of well, that didn't work. And lots and lots of reading. I will say that um, when I get it to a point that I know I'm going to finish what I'm going to start, I have been known to ask someone else to look at it. Usually my husband, um, because he's not going to pick apart the specifics. He's just going to let me know where the plot is moving the way it should. But as far as editing and yeah, I do almost all of that myself. I will occasionally read a line out loud to whoever's nearest and say, "Does that make sense to you, or does that sound right?" But most of the time, it's me, and it is a long process of editing and cutting out and rethinking. Writing collaboratively has got to have some massive pluses in that respect, and that one person can go, "That sounds clunky," you know. Right, kind of,
3: because because you can do it right then. Oh, and yeah. It has masses, <laughs> minuses, and yeah, there are. others so so, yeah. you need to have two people together. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, did you find that
1: it's helpful? to give your manuscript to a select group of people to read it and give you feedback, is that something that at the end of that you feel better or when they give you their feedback you go, oh, my God, I have to start over?
2: Almost every time it's been positive experience, with the exception of one time in which it was sent back to me by a well-meaning friend who told me, in fact, to be honest with you, it was Fox Files, he told me this is a cute little story but it's not going anywhere. And <laughs> that actually crushed me, and it had a lot to do with why I would treat it like my guilty pleasure for quite a while. But it did push me to move on to other work, and it did push me to mature as a writer. Well,
1: and, to and think it,
2: about
1: I mean, one of the downsides is is that it might have put fassen awesome files in the drawer forever. and so almost yeah, right. And, and yes. one, one of the things that we've been struggling with here is we don't really know what people like. You know, when you're writing a book, You look at it from John Grisham's perspective, and it's like, well, whatever I write, as long as there's a lawyer or a law student involved, everyone in America will love it. And, you know, I think that you've you've very likely had this experience where a story that one person loves, somebody else just hates. And I think what we're struggling with right now to come around to is, you know what, not everybody's going to like the idea, the writing, the characters, the dialogue. It may just not be their cup of tea. But if you wrote a book about something else, they would
3: love it. And so right. I think it's important to not get crushed too early right. and, for, and for the wrong reason. Right. Like if this book were about a cat, that was like you got to be way behind you. But dogs, really? I don't like dogs. Well, then it's not true. <laughs> right. And, and you got get yourself checked because something something's off. Something's off, right? Um, and then
1: the next thing that that I found um, that I I've been curious about since I read Sing is where do you get your ideas from? Which is a, I know it's a, it's a cliche writer's question, mm-hmm. but, but I should be clear that your ideas are not just lonely woman living in big city meets the man of her dreams and they go on a whirlwind romance. You've got buffalo on Mars. And so, <laughs> and you've got mermaids living by the seashore. You've got a dog that can talk to, uh, his owner. Do these things just come to you in the middle of the night? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do these things get in your head?
2: Oh, I think every day, every idea arrives a little bit differently. Um, occasionally they arrive all at once. And occasionally it is, with short fiction in particular for me, it's a very right-brained process. Um, I joined a, a writer's workshop run by a crazy guy over in Britain and, um, by the name of Alex Keegan a few years back. And I walked away from that workshop with two particular skills that have benefited me. Number one, a good work ethic, which means you sit down and you write every day. And the other one, because that's what writers do, you can call yourself a writer all you want, but until you're actually practicing it, you're just pretending. And the other thing that he taught was uh, trusting your mind for the story to a certain degree. I think you have to have some skills walking into it in order to do that. But um, Buffalo on Mars in particular was a very light brained thing. It was actually a piece of flash fiction written as an exercise. So I probably was inspired to a certain degree by my love of Ray Bradbury stuff, um and his you know and his mars stuff but the buffalo that was all me so and and, and
1: the story as i pointed out in my review isn't so much about the buffalo it's about you know it's about a pioneer woman trying to survive in a a harsh environment which could really have been anywhere Uh, i thought it was brilliant to put it on mars yeah
2: so well thank you yeah. yeah
1: Uh, let's see. So the, the next question, and this is this is probably for the smallest segment of our audience, the fellow writers who are trying to go the self-publish uh, what they call the indie route. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you got it from manuscript to finished product? I mean, it sounded like you used Amazon and Smashwords.
2: Yeah, for marketing. Yeah, for selling it. Um, Amazon is, uh, you know about their Kindle and their indie publishing thing. Yes. Um, you put it through a fair amount of formatting, both. Both sites have excellent uh, manuals that you can find for free that if you will put them on your Kindle or whatever you're using and read it, they give you step-by-step directions for the actual formatting. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah. Well,
3: I guess
1: to start further back, I know that we know that Kindle has several publishing packages available. And some of them seem to include everything from we just take your ebook and put it up on our site to... You know, editing services and artwork services and just, you know, so when you go to publish your books, what what kind of services are you engaging with Amazon to get that published?
2: Oh, um, you just um, upload it. They have a KDP website. And
1: KDP um, is Kindle Direct Publishing,
2: is that right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. Okay. I use Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. Thank you. Yes, and you go through that and you follow the bouncing bubbles. Um, but the formatting is really important because they will kick it back to you if it's not formatted properly, plus what your readers won't like it. And, did you get a
3: afterwards. chance to look at it on your own Kindle before it was live on Amazon? Or?
2: Yes, 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 okay. yes. You, get, you can download it and look at it again before it goes live. That way you'll know if it looks right. Your best bet, at least this time I learned, I went and used the Spanish words formatting, which was what you heard me fussing, what I was fussing about when I was fighting with it. And um, their formatting directions are very, very, very specific. And if you will follow their directions to the letter, then it should work for both sides. Anyhow, and I found that to be true this time. It was actually a relief that, then I didn't have to do it twice. Smashwords will also kick it back to you if it's not perfect, uh, not the editing part, the actual text part, the rest of it. Want, they want to know your cover is going to look right. They want to know that, that when somebody opens it up that the print itself lines up just right on each of the e-readers that you're going to be having your work available on. And
1: did you, so, did you design your own cover
2: my second-born designed um, the one for Fawson Files. Um, mm. He is—that's uh, Daniel—and he did a knockout job. I was in the living room talking with my other kids and my husband. and I was saying, "I need a cover for this," and I was talking about what I thought I wanted. My oldest and I were discussing taking photographs and doing all these things. And Daniel strolls in. And he stands there, and Daniel has an act of being kind of quietly brilliant. And he won't—it's it, kind of an off-handed thing with him. Uh, we expect him very often to be a millionaire someday and not tell anybody. Um, but he's standing there beside me and he says, Mom, I've got your cover design. You do. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And we walked into his room and he pulled it up on his computer and it was absolutely perfect. It was exactly what I didn't know to ask for. And, and so, um, but, uh, uh Singh, my oldest son, created that one. And yes, you can go to other people for those. And if I had an endless supply of money, I would probably consider a professional graphic artist.
1: Right,
3: and, um, and so it
1: seems,
3: it seems like that as part of the
1: publishing process, the self-publishing process, a lot of it is just money, is what can I afford? yeah. Yep. And yep. so, And so it seems like there were a list of things you couldn't live without in getting the book published, but there were some things that you didn't opt in for. Uh Any, right. any idea of what, uh, can you tell us what that list was like?
2: Um, I had chosen um, opt-in for. You mean professional editing versus doing it myself?
1: Well, I mean because we looked at the we looked at the Kindle Direct Publishing package. We looked at their Cadillac plan, which includes copy yeah. editing, cover design, um, uh, yeah. press releases, and you know all kinds of other things. And and um, no, yeah. So. If you
2: trust your own capacity to edit and I've read your stuff, it seems to me like you two should be able to manage that. If you trust your own capacity to edit, um, I would suggest it. But. You know, there's lots of different approaches. You can hire somebody else to do it for you. You know, in the back of my head, that it always sounded really good. It would be nice if all I had to do was write the story and just send it out to somebody else. Well, oh, and that's,
1: you know, that's an excellent point because, yeah. you know, in traditional publishing, the artist gets to do that. And I think we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes. You know, uh, somewhere in, in, in the woods of Montana, there's a guy who's turning out great manuscripts. And if he could just... FedEx those to uh, his agent, who turns it over to his publisher, who turns it over to the marketing department. You know, all he's got to do is is go straight to the next book. And it seemed like in this case, after 10 years of waiting to get it to get it done, you had to spend quite a lot of your time finishing it up. And now, now that it's out, you're gonna have to spend quite a lot of your time marketing it and promoting it.
3: Yes. Well, yes. I, was gonna, I was actually gonna ask how you felt about. Being an indie publisher rather than going a traditional route, because there are things like you said that cover that if you go to a traditional publishing house, you don't have any say at all in what the cover looks like. Nope. Y- your name nope. is not all you get to dictate, right? And so well, they can change. Yeah. They, can change
2: the, they can change the title. They can yeah. change the cover. They can even change the ending of the story if they want to. Um, once they have you have signed it over to them, they are pretty much free to do what they want with it. That's the downside to traditional publishing.
3: Was, was, there, any, um, is, was there any point in in
1: Uh, because I know that the the final edits and all that was really uh, quite a lot of work for you. Was there any point where you said, you know what, (laughs) if a publisher wanted my book and would just leave me alone so I could work on the next one, I would do it?
2: I don't know. (laughs) I think I'd consider it. If I'm understanding it from reading the whole publishing business news right now, writers who work with publishing houses, unless they are just turning out, you know, the kinds of books that everybody in the whole world wants to read, bestsellers, the average writer isn't making that much, and you still wind up doing an awful lot of your own marketing, um, even as a writer working with a publishing house. Um, Any more, they expect you to carry a fair amount of that, uh, a fair amount of that burden. So, yeah,
3: and we, and we've telling. often thought that it's it's going to change how or who we're reading in the future because you know in the past. Uh, you know, no one cared if Hemingway was good at marketing, although he actually was. But mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there are people who they could just sit in that shack in Montana, you know, covered in feces, and produce the best writing in the world. But they're afraid to talk to anyone online or go anywhere. That's never going anyplace. And yeah. it's, it's really unfair. It's like asking a chef if he's good at farming. You know, it's like, but that's not what I do. <clears throat> well, well, it's also, But you have to. It's it's like
1: asking a chef really to to set the table, and and yeah. do the dishes. You know, and it's it's. Uh, so the, the question, the ultimate question for you, haven't, you've
3: done this now several times, is it worth it at the end?
2: Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so, personally. I enjoy all of the work. The marketing stuff still feels a little foreign to me, and uh, Twitter is not necessarily my favorite thing, but but it does seem to be paying off. Um, it moves too fast. Um, right. it really and does. <laughs> what's that?
3: It really does.
2: Yeah, and also, there, for me personally, um, I kind of like to put a name with a face and have some sense of relationship with people, and that is not happening when you have 1,500 people
1: right, you know, but, on your But front. I will tell you that you know, all the advice that people give you about Twitter is exactly that. Make, make honest and sincere connections. Be generous yeah. with your time and your support, and you'll get that in return. Yeah. What it means is that you're dealing with very big numbers. Yeah, I am. Um, I've been fortunate. that
2: uh, uh, I've connected with three or four people through Twitter I genuinely like.
1: Right. And we have too. And and so, you know, we find that when you distill that really large number down to people that we've made a connection with who will promote what we're trying to promote, it's it's really a a much smaller number. Um, Yeah. But but it's more effective. It's it's worth their weight in gold. Uh, if somebody says, "Hey, I actually read this book. I'm not just retweeting it. I've read it. I liked it. Yeah. And I think that you should buy it. And I think that that's. Yeah. It, I think it's just a shift for for self published indie writers to say it doesn't really help me to have a hundred thousand followers if none of them are are really reading my work. I'll really fine. Yeah. That's very true. Very
2: true. So I'm still making my way through that end of things and figuring out um, how pushy to be. And um, (laughs) (laughs) some of it's about time. Um, As you guys know, you guys both work too. And, uh, you know, I try to fit Twitter in around um, everything else. I bought a Nexus pad so I could keep up with it, you know, while I'm I'm waiting for my in classes. I was going to say, you're (laughs) also,
3: if you didn't have enough to do, you're also taking on British (laughs) literature. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah, I, um, I'm a part-time student this semester. I'll be closer to full-time next semester. But, yeah, I've got that in the philosophy class this semester. Oh, wow. Um, both of which are required, not something I took on a whim. So, yeah, um, and those those two classes keep me busier than I honestly anticipated. But that's what happens when you're a senior. So.
1: Right. and And when you're tracking how well the books are doing, for example, if a celebrated podcast reviews your book and extols its virtues, are you seeing a bump after that? Like when you do marketing for the book, do you see kind of an immediate result in terms of sales going up or anything like that? Or is it all just a mystery?
2: It's, uh, oh no, you can track your, your sales. And I can't say that mine have been fantastic, but they haven't been that bad either. But as I understand it, um, the more books you have out there, the better you do, and more your visibility is increased. Um, but no, you can track that through Amazon. Um, they have that set up so you can see usually, and they, they seem to be a little glitchy. Um, I'm catching it from other writers that they seem to be having some problems there. But usually you can go to your KDP site and click this month's sales, and it will show you, and usually the sales will show up immediately. So.
1: That's good. So so you can actually tell, and you say, well, if I spend the day tweeting about my new book, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, usually I sell, I don't know, 100 copies a day, and after I've been tweeting for 24 hours, I'm selling 150 or 200 you you do right. get that kind of feedback, right? Away. Yes, you do. Yes, yeah, you do. That's good
2: Usually within minutes, but occasionally it'll be the next day before it shows up. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Good. Well, now we have uh, because I'm sure we cannot say this enough. This is our first real interview. Uh, we do have some questions that we're gonna we're gonna ask that don't have anything to do with your writing. <laughs> so <laughs> here we go. Okay. Who is your favorite author and why?
2: If you're talking long-term, the one that's affected me probably the most powerfully would be Ray Bradbury. Yeah, he was the first probably science fiction writer I discovered in high school, and I think I've read everything he wrote. Um, there's other writers that are more transient. That list tends to be rather lengthy, um, and we'd be here all day if we were talking about them. But, um, that, yeah, I think that would probably be the enduring favorite.
1: All right. Um, what was your first car?
2: A minivan. <laughs> <laughs> is that because I didn't learn to drive for it? children? <laughs> I didn't learn to drive until I was 27. And to be honest with you, I frequently have to ask what kind of car I have because I'm the world's worst for forgetting. And that sounds – in an household of men you can imagine. So you, if you were hoping to talk cars, you're talking to the wrong oh, girl.
1: no, I was hoping to find a kindred spirit because I also have to, you know, like when you, when you go in a hotel to check in and they want to know what make uh-huh. and model your car is. Yep. I never yep, had yep, that information, yep. and it is it is my um, my children actually bought the minivan that I have. They researched it online. They picked out the yep. dealer. They came to the meeting with me. They told them what options they wanted. All I had to do was offer up my credit rating and a check. So uh, I think I'm with you right there, and, and in terms of learning to drive when you're 27, there are people who say that I have yet to learn. I think you're probably doing all right. And so, now, uh, one other question I had, and this actually does pertain to maybe just you, but how many dogs do you have and how many children do you have?
2: <laughs> I have <clears throat> six dogs, and um, I, I don't often admit that. I usually just tell most people more than most people, and I have four children. Two of them are in their 20s, and two are teenagers.
1: Wow. So, between that and British literature and philosophy, you have no free time at all.
2: Oh, you make free time. You make you make time for the things that are important to you. But um, no, when, when I don't want to do something, I'm really busy.
3: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, well, um, well, you can help us settle a bet. So you, you have a bit of an accent. We we're we we're guessing on, on pieces of paper here. We're trading them back and forth, trying to figure out where your accent is from. So you'll have to settle that bet for us.
2: Okay. You want to know where I'm from?
3: Originally, or where you picked up the delightful accent?
2: Um, Well, um, it's kind of split up between Texas, which would probably explain a little of it, and Arkansas and the Ozarks. Um, So I probably, to you, sound a little bit southern. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that explains that. Um, So uh, this is the end of the interview portion, so we want to thank you uh, most sincerely for being our first victim uh, (laughs) or interviewee, as it were. We're going to put links up for the listeners as to where they can buy your book and encourage them pretty strongly to do that because I i may have told you, I've read it twice now and I think it's just great. So hopefully we can encourage lots of people to uh, find out what it is that I'm talking about. And a big facet of our podcast is food porn. And so we always invite our interviewees to, to ride along as it were and tell us about either the best thing you've eaten in a while, the best thing that you've eat at a restaurant, or any kind of singular memorable experience that you've had around food, if you've got something, go ahead and, and tell us
3: about
2: it. Well, I mentioned to uh, Stacy, in the email yesterday that 90% of my eating out, and it isn't often, um, revolves around family eating, Pizza Hut, um, in other words. Um, when you're feeding four boys, uh, that, that's what you do. But the last time that Gary and I slipped off and went someplace meaningful by ourselves was to the Basin Park Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas um and maybe someday you should trot down there and visit because it's a really beautiful area but and we ate and the in their restaurant and the name was hopefully oh, oh well it's in the both basin park hotel and um <laughs> I I, <laughs> <eat that. laughs> but i had a one was a mushroom burger um oh Fooey. there it goes again another big blank spot um I mentioned portobello mushroom. There it is, the portobello mushroom burger, and I had never had anything quite like that, and it was um, excellent. I didn't know you could do that to mushrooms.
3: Yeah, many people Um, don't realize that a portobello is a a very meaty mushroom, and and people are pretty because they have it on a pizza or whatever, but it's it's such a different, uh, well, animal, it's actually. Yeah, Yeah, well,
2: it inspired me to come home and learn how to make it myself. Um, and that honestly doesn't happen very often. I am a pretty functional cook feeding this many men, um, and they're all pretty much meat and potatoes guys, not gourmets. And so I came home and made that, and all the men in the house, with the exception of the one that doesn't like mushrooms, devoured it and asked for more. So that was a big hit, and it was an excellent restaurant with good music and, you know, nice wine. They have a real nice formal wines list, and, uh, we really had a good time down there.
3: So did you, uh, in that,
1: in that vein, is there a dish that your kids or your husband beg you to make that you're known for?
2: Oh, spinach. Uh, spinach quiche. I hear a lot about that one. Um, and spinach spinach lasagna. Those are the two big. Hits. Notice how they both feature spinach. Um, <laughs> and so, Oh, and sour cream, chicken enchiladas. Those you know we're going to
1: want the recipes for those for the website if they're not a trade secret.
2: <laughs> no, they're not. I'll be happy to send them to you.
1: All right. I think that wraps us up. Again, thanks very much for for playing our little game. And um, for those of you loyal listeners out there, we will provide you everything you need to know about Mary Paddock and her books. And we'll encourage you to go and buy them. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thanks Mary. All right.
2: right, You guys take care.
1: So that was our interview with Mary Paddock. We hope you enjoyed it. Please go buy her book. The link to it will be on the website.
0: Now it's time for Waka Waka Chaka Waka Waka Food Porn. Food Food porn. Porn theme so in foodborne we had a couple of things that we wanted to mention um first since we just had our interview with mary paddock we uh, we do have mary paddock's recipe for the her delightful spinach dishes up there and you know if a bunch of hungry boys are willing to
1: eat their spinach it's gotta be tasty well and in describing the the men of her household mary makes them sound like they're storybook giants and so (laughs) you know these are the these are the men that you would think would be eating you know hunks of beef and sides of of creature the sturdy men of the ozarks the sturdy men of the ozarks and then for us to find out that they eat spinach well our thought was that had better be some pretty good spinach so mary has even a mushroom yes so mary has sent us the recipe and i think that we may prevail upon the cooks that we know to replicate the recipe and make it for us and that way we can kind of tell you how good it is i'm somewhat surprised we haven't done that already Yes. Nonetheless, nonetheless, give us another chance. We'll do it for <laughs> next SajCast.
0: So one of the things that we we talked about in the, the last few Sodcasts was that we had a food porn disagreement about a restaurant that we did not go to at the same time. You, you had gone once, and I had gone a different time, and we didn't uh, we didn't share a common experience. And so we thought perhaps in some sort of second chance related episode we might go back together. And uh, and this was also the edict of our first co co-host Charles Joy, who said that we must go back. And so true to our word and our our uh, our vow to him, we did just
1: that. Well, was it a vow, or is it just that co co-hosts are somewhat bossy and <laughs> tell us what to do? Because if we I think we agreed. If we come to if we go to Charles with a disagreement, and we whine to him that well, I think it's good, and I don't think it's I don't think it's that good. He. He did a very King Solomon-style ruling in which he said, he decreed that you must go back. Slice the restaurant in half. That's, we don't have the tools for that. But he ordered us, well, he commanded us to go back at the same time and have have dinner at Cancun. And so we said, fine, Charles, whatever. And we actually
0: did this uh, on Halloween. Oh, that's right. It was uh, just after... The Sajkast. It was,
1: was it? No, the day after the cast. The day after the Anyway, we, we ordered uh, that the meatloaf that had been in, in the making for Halloween, the traditional Halloween meatloaf, uh, be abandoned in, in favor of us all going to Cancun to uh, give it a try.
0: Yeah, so the, the four of us, So that would be uh, my girlfriend Suzanne and I, and you and... Your girlfriend, Laura. That's right.
1: And so we went to Cancun,
0: and we were sat at a table that was 80% the size, <laughs> to be fair, of a normal table that would seat four. So it felt a little cramped.
1: And this is, this will be critical information for later. Yes. And so we ordered a variety of appetizers. The chips, the chips we found to be good. The salsa we found to be good. Uh, the guacamole, which I know you don't uh, eat. <laughs> I, I enjoyed, so... It was good. It was good. And uh, the cheese dip, which, cheese dip, which again, although it didn't have any meat in it. Yes, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Montoya's chorizo dip uh, trumps that because it is just a bowl of weak cheese and a small bowl of that. And and so, you know, while it was not horrible, it just wasn't up to what my, I'm used to. Yeah, we probably should have. We should have had them because they do have chorizo. We probably should have just asked them to put some in there. But well, but my question. It may, well, be that as it may, my question is: is that how hard do we have to work to make this a good <laughs> restaurant? Are we supposed to call the manager over or go back into the kitchen to the chef and say, you know, this would be much better if you would uh, do up some chorizo and put it in there? And what do you think the response to that would be? Well, it's, it's hard to say. We didn't. We didn't ask. So we didn't ask, and so we accepted the cheese dip as offered.
0: I'm trying to recall what everyone had. You had fajitas, right? I had a non-pineapple
1: ensconced <laughs> fajita, <laughs> a, a
0: traditional fajita.
1: Oh, well, if you want to use shorthand, bring me the fajita without the
0: pineapple. I also had a fajita. I think we had. Well, I had the the one that had shrimp, and you had the one that didn't have shrimp. But essentially, it was the same fajita. And the, I thought the 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 sauce that they used to to make it a fajita, and you know when they when they grilled it up, was was pretty tasty. Um, and otherwise, it was, I mean, it's a middle-of-the-road kind of restaurant. It's not like, you know, God's gift to Mexican restaurants by any means. Anyway, but but I, I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, as, well, what's the word, you know, kind of Tex-Mex goes, I thought it, you know, it was competent. Yes, yeah, so, well, I think that's a, I
1: think that's a, a reasonable um, appraisal. Um, and my only problem, well, two problems. Um, the table was jammed into my sternum for most <laughs> of the meal. And much like a cartoon character, I found that my food didn't go all the way down. (laughs) And so my problem, post-Cancun Part 2, was that I felt, I don't know, (laughs) fat. I felt physically compressed, and I had to go drink a lot of water and and stand upright for a long time to get that to work out.
0: Well, to be be completely open and honest, there may have been six or seven pounds of cake uh, that showed up after the Cancun visit, which may have... Inhibited your digestion in some small way. No, oh, no,
1: I was feeling bad before the cake. I <laughs> took the cake uh, almost medicinally. The way that uh, the way that people used to drink whiskey and say, "No, no, it's medicine, right?" So I said, "Ah, cake, it's it's medicinal. It will ease my digestive troubles that have come from having this thing wedged like some sort of Inquisition torture device in my sternum while I'm trying to eat a fajita, which." Didn't have any pineapple in it,
0: and and, uh, and and for those of you who think I was exaggerating, uh, what was the actual poundage of pudding in that cake?
1: Well, this is a Costco cake, and it was a sheet cake. It was be a fair. sheet Not cake, round thing. It was pretty big. It's one of those things that um, every now and then we get a craving for, and then we have to invite seven or eight people over to help us eat it. But in the box, the way it comes from Costco, it weighs nine point eight pounds,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like a baby.
1: So we didn't eat, I mean, we froze half of it, we gave another quarter of it away, my children descended on it like a biblical plague, and so it didn't really last very long. And we ate a modest amount of cake um, post Cancun too. I think the cake is a needless distraction. <laughs> well as all cake is but. oh right well that's a good point i guess uh, when you when you put it like that yes you mean in the context of the storytelling yeah, i mean the yes in the context of storytelling i have decided having given it now two fair shots well one fair shot uh acting under the orders of thanos rules uh i'm probably not going to voluntarily go back to cancun but i will say that if y'all decide to go there I will go with you, and I will avoid the pineapple-ensconced fajita, which now they're going to have to start calling it that. Well, I guess the question
0: for you then is, uh, in, in a, in a worst-case scenario, if Montoya's were to close, would you then go to Cancun, or would you go further afield
1: elsewhere? No, I'd go to Cancun. Okay. If so there was no Montoya's, fair. you know, it, it, again, if you get back to presidential history, um, if there wasn't one of these available, we would have settled for this. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, because no, there, there are things further afield. That's, that's why I was
1: just wondering how that math worked out. Well, and as listeners in the SajCast know, part of my interest in the restaurant is proximity to my house because I don't want to go too far. And I must say that on Halloween night, I don't want to be driving around with little kids in costume running around. And,
0: well, and it was yeah. a, a very cold, rainy night uh, that
1: yes. last, this, this last Halloween. So, uh, yeah, not a good night to be gallivanting too far and wide. And in, in Cancun's defense, and I think that, you know, since I am not a proponent, I will argue that they are in a strip mall with, let's count them up now, there's a sports bar next door to a Penn Station, which is next door to a Domino's, which is down the way from a coffee shop, which is across the strip mall from a Thai restaurant, which is next door to Cancun, which is next door to an Indian restaurant, which is next door to an Outback Steakhouse. I think you got them all. I did get them all. This is one strip mall by the way. Yes. And parking is something of a beach. <laughs> yes. It, the parking is not fun, but At dinner time anyway. But here's what it means is that is that a decision was made to put a restaurant in a strip mall that's full of restaurants. And so for them to survive is a testament to the quality of their food. Well, yeah, I guess we shall see, as they've only been there
0: less than a month, or just I guess about a month now. Yes, we will. But uh but speaking of that very crowded um Strip mall.
1: Strip mall of food porn.
0: We uh, you know, we should get a The food porn hall of fame. While we're
1: out buying plaques, <laughs> we should buy a plaque for this strip mall and call it the strip mall of food porn and just, uh, you know, attach it to the building in some out-of-the-way place. <laughs> and since we're naming things now. Well,
0: yeah, so we had a writing Saturday last week, as is our, our custom generally every other Saturday and in the early morning hours before the dawn. And so uh, we, we broke for lunch, and we went uh, to that strip mall because it's not especially far from here, and uh, we didn't go to Cancun, nor did we go to Outback. We instead went to Guru Indian.
1: Yes, and I think we've, I don't know if we've talked about them. I'm I don't think guests. we've ever talked about them, and
0: one of the things I wanted to bring up, and although I didn't take a picture of it, I thought it would be worth mentioning because we've mentioned chicken wings a number of times, uh, our trip to Hooters and uh, the chicken wing uh, places of our youth and down in Florida, so we're, we're clearly fans. This Indian restaurant, at least at lunchtime, has a buffet. And so uh, you can kind of pick and choose between things. And if you've never had a particular Indian dish, this is a, a good way to experience it without committing fully to the, the whole meal being that one thing. Most of you are probably familiar with tandoori chicken, uh, which is that red chicken that Indian restaurants serve. The tandoor is actually the oven that it's cooked in, not the sauce that it's cooked in. It's a yogurt sauce that makes it red. Long story. But uh, next to the tandoori chicken, they had a, a kind of a like a, a walk almost, yeah. yeah, of chicken wings... And they didn't quite look tandoori. They had the the classic red tandoori, but there was some more stuff on them. Upon closer inspection, it turned out that these were tandoori buffalo wing. Tandoori sauce with a hint or or just mixed in with basically a traditional American buffalo wing sauce. And I have to say, they were pretty tasty. I had never experienced that or had even conceived of such an
1: idea before. And you tried some, didn't you? I don't think I did. I think that um, you had just regular, yeah, the regular the, red chicken. I had the regular tandoori chicken, and then um, some sort of curry sauce got on my sleeve, and I was distracted. So <laughs> I didn't get any chicken wing.
0: Uh, but but what's uh, one of the things about this restaurant that's noteworthy is because uh, we've been here a couple times over the years. Well, there's kind of a backstory to this where when we go in there, we often feel as if we might be treated uh, less than.
1: The princely way that we're used to being treated in restaurants. Oh, is that our standard? We're, <laughs> so you're saying now that we get treated well in restaurants? Yeah. Listeners to the SajCast, if you go back and listen to all of them, you will hear the episode where we pretended to chop off a guy's leg, and we
0: were not treated princely at the Outback. Well, they didn't arrest us or anything. They they just kept their distance. The um. But yeah. Anyway, I, I was going to say there's there's a backstory here, um,
1: which I, I thought was worth sharing yes well we are all fans of indian food and my girlfriend laura is a big fan of indian food and she was the one who discovered the guru india restaurant and i said as i usually do like when cancun was discovered i said oh that's right near my house i had no idea because (laughs) apparently that's like that's like looking for gold in fort knox there's a restaurant here where between all the restaurants in the strip mall with all the restaurants i had i had no idea so she discovered the restaurant, and originally when we when we went there, we didn't really go there. She would go for takeout. So you call the order in. Yeah. And this is, by the way, this is such an accomplished process that now that my children are mobile because my oldest daughter's driving now, they now do the same thing. They have Guru India's phone number on their phones. They call in their standard order, and then 10 or 15 minutes later, because that's all it ever takes to make food, on that side of the world, and then they go and get it. And so Laura kind of perfected this, and she would go get the food, most often because I was working late or something. And so uh, she attracted an admirer who worked at Guru, uh, a busboy, um, a very tiny man, but he was very devoted to her, and he he uh, knew her by name, and he could tell by the, by the order that it was for her, but I think he started to suspect that there was someone else involved because it was a great deal of food. <laughs> it was a large order of food. It was a large of order of food, and so one time I went with her to pick the food up, and he was waiting behind the counter in his standard position of admiration because anytime <laughs> he knew that she was coming in, wherever he was, he could sense it, and he sprinted for the front. Um, and, uh, and so we came in to pick up the food, and he looked at me up and down, and he said is this him?
0: <laughs> and I gotta say,
1: I felt a little uncomfortable even though this lad is a, is a tiny fellow. He seemed scrappy. And his devotion to Laura was, uh, was almost puppy-like in its intensity. And um, so a number of unco- uncomfortable things happened. Um, I decided that in the tradition of the ancient Roman emperors, I was going to have to employ a food taster whenever we went to the Guru India. And I started to pay real close attention to the the sheer number of admirers that Laura seemed to attract. <laughs> and I started to be aware of those things, and I felt like I needed some kind of protection, my own Praetorian guard, as it were. Well, I have to say,
0: I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I remember on maybe two occasions being there with the two of you um, and, and having witnessed this, and I can say firsthand, it is not a myth. So it was with some reluctance, uh, listeners, that we went... Without witnesses. Without our, without our lovely ladies beside us. Uh, and risk, you know, the uh, the poisoning that was likely to ensue. But happily, uh, he was not working that shift, or he was in the back, and his radar didn't go off, and, and so we didn't encounter him. Yes, so we were not poisoned. And so we've come to the end of Sajcast number fifteen, sponsored by Second
1: Chances, makers of do overs, rehabilitation, and another bite at the apple.